the incomparable. Number 564, May 2021. Welcome back to The Incomparable, everybody. I'm Dan Morin, and we're here to talk about the latest in the hit parade of Marvel TV shows to hit Disney+, Plus, the second iteration so far. And I'm joined by a fantastic panel today. Uh, James Thompson is here. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, I'm just a wizard without a hat, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I've said that to you before, and <laughs> it won't be the last time. Uh, from I Want My MCU TV, Kelly Gamond is here. Hi, Kelly. The incomparable has jurisdiction wherever the incomparable finds itself to be. <laughs> that is true. That is legally true. Uh, I don't want to get into the details. Uh, Nathan, Al- <laughs> Nathan Alderman is also here. Hi, Nathan. Hi. Uh, hi, Dan. One podcast, one panel. <laughs> Ooh, that's wonderful. Uh, Ooh, I like it. I feel conflicted about that one. Uh, we'll see how it goes as we continue our discussion. And also from I Want My MCU TV, Lisa Schmeiser is here. Hello, Lisa. Hello. The power broker is watching. <laughs> <laughs> or listening, I guess, probably more appropriately in this context. Uh, <laughs> yes. All right. So as I said up top, we're here to discuss The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which aired on Disney Plus, a six-episode miniseries, the second official, I'm going to put that in quotes because it really depends how people count, uh, MCU <laughs> TV show. Uh, we talked about WandaVision uh, a month or two ago when that finished airing, uh, and that sort of segued pretty seamlessly into The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, and before we sort of uh, jump into nitty-gritty details, and before I even ring the spoiler horn, there will be a spoiler horn coming, um, I just wanted to see if any of you wanted to open with a statement, as you might say, or or, or speak in your defense, perhaps. <laughs> I just want to go on record as saying that um, hearing you use the actual title of the program sounds weird <laughs> because our entire show has basically ignored the actual title of the program. So, um, yeah, we have called it a great number of things. It's such an awkward title. In it's my weird. defense, I feel like it's an awkward title that doesn't flow. And like, maybe that's the point. But I honestly feel like the Falcon and the Snowman can't be friends flows a lot better than the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. <laughs> yes. uh, I also I also deeply loved uh, the, the Falcon, the Winter Soldier, and the Wardrobe. Uh, that's a good yeah. one. It, in my house, it's known as uh, uh, Bird Boy and Winter Man, I think. Oh, Bird Boy and Winter Man. That sounds almost like an Adult Swim cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Fly guy and broody McBrood face. Yeah, uh, all those, all yeah. valid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dan, my statement, my statement is that I only did what you asked me to do. You made me. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I didn't make anybody do anything. That's all I'm saying. No. Dan, it's like I didn't make you be here. <laughs> <laughs> I asked nicely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so nobody, nobody wants to take a shot. Nobody said it's fine. We can dive into a, uh, a spoilerific yeah. conversation. Uh, we'll we'll fire off the spoiler horn here. Uh, needless to say, you know, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Unless you just want to enjoy the conversation, you don't really care about being spoiled. Also fine. Mm-hmm. We're not here to tell you how to live your life, but we will go ahead and, and fire off the spoiler horn now. <laughs> Um, All right. So um, what I think, you know, just want to start off talking about broadly for this is as with WandaVision, I think this show took the opportunity to let us spend a little more time with some characters who were perhaps not given as much 
uh, screen time in the MCU movies. And I'm kind of curious to know how you folks felt coming into this, uh, whether you had any particular feelings about these characters, predominantly Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes, uh, and what you sort of were thinking when you, you know, heard that this was a show that was happening. I mean, I, I thought this was going to be a relatively light kind of quippy buddy <laughs> action show. Uh, and it really, really wasn't. Um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, as a story about racism in America, especially in a mainstream Disney series, I think it was pretty good. As an actual show, I thought it was a complete mess. Um, but it, it was, it was interesting, at least. It was a beautiful mess. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the show was a mess, but it was so ambitious and so yeah. interesting and heartfelt that you know I'll take a I'll take a sloppy swing for the fences over a safe bunt any day. Same, uh, yeah. We we I think Kelly and I talked about that a little bit too, and mm-hmm. um, I think there's a couple things going on, and one is that Bucky Barnes was like the least interesting character in the MCU prior to this show. Mm. <laughs> I'll fight anybody who says that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, and it's it's no fault of Sebastian Stans, but we really don't get a sense of him as anything other than like the 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 forgotten member of Fallout Boy with a metal arm. And oh, he's sad and damaged for free movies and he fights and like this is the first movie where we really get a sense and I'm going to call it a movie because it basically is. Um, we get a sense of who he is and what makes him tick and what he values. And you kind of have to have that if you really want to be invested in the character. But I think it also suffered. I wouldn't say suffered. I think WandaVision was such a different show in that um, it was a show that went in being, all okay, television is our narrative. We're going to completely lean into every single television convention that people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, this is familiar and comfortable. And it was an easy way to slide them into like a bigger MCU narrative. And it was relatable and accessible. And this is basically six hours of like Marvel 2... 201 where you had to have done like a little bit of the syllabus for marvel 101 first and there's like some spy craft going on and then a lot of questions about symbolism and globalism and racism and people were like i just really like it when Catherine hahn has a theme song (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't coming here to learn about how the u.s government continues to experiment on people in horrible ways um Mm -hmm. so I, I think there was a little bit of that too. They're two such completely different flavors. And it's handy to remember that just as the MCU is not a monolith, neither is the fan base. So mm-hmm. you have people who maybe were like, I'm expecting a fun, quippy TV show. And instead were like, whoa, I was not expecting this at all. <laughs> you got <laughs> yeah. you got themes in my peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of like part of what we talked about with it was um we appreciated uh, that it it never looked like this Disney show was going to have a Disney movie ending where it turns out the two of them's really going to be buddies after all, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like there there wasn't any of that. Like, you know, they they were two wet cats in a sack at the beginning and <laughs> they were basically two less wet cats in a sack at the end. Like they were, you know, they'd like sort of come to an understanding, but it wasn't like they were buddies and we didn't see them. Like, really, you know, we didn't see them, you know, either of them build the relationship with the other one like they had 
with Steve Rogers. And so it was really nice to see that they didn't put a big bow around that, like, you know, uh, that they're that they're friends. Like we get that at the end of episode five, you know, when they're like co-workers, uh, you know, two guys with a with a mutual friend, you know, but the friend is gone. So we're two guys. Yeah, OK, I can live with that. We're two guys. That, that you know, said, that the was, show does end with the two of them at like a like a picnic lunch. So yeah, I, I was going to say I, he I, brought a cake. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't I know. Mean, I, I think they do towards the end establish a friendship between these two guys and it's built in a way that is more. Uh, challenging than the relationship that either of them had with Steve. Absolutely. And I do find it adorable that he brings a cake. To, it takes a lot of nerve to walk into a barbecue with that quality of food with your store-bought cake. Because you're like, <laughs> yeah. Store-bought cake. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Totally. And yet, exactly I, Bucky. That is exactly Bucky. But, but that he, is, like, he's trying. And that's yeah. the thing is, he's like, I recognize, I recognize your cultural conventions and strive to meet them in my own limited capacity. This is what I can do. This is yeah. my contribution. Yeah. And then, like, the arm when, when he's, like, having a conversation with somebody and he's got like a couple of kids crawling around on the arm like that i really enjoyed that moment even like you know with no dialogue or anything watching that was very entertaining i I did want to pick up what lisa was talking about a little bit in terms of bucky being one of the characters who is you know (laughs) perhaps the least developed i mean his his role in those first couple captain america movies is essentially to be a motivation for steve right like Mm -hmm. he's almost literally fridged in that first (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in that first uh, Captain America movie as he's thrown off a train into the icy, you know, depths or what have you. I think when they put you in a freezer, Dan, it still counts as fridging. Okay. All right. Just it's checking. It's literally the definition he's of literally, fridging. Yeah, he's literally, <laughs> he is literally cryogenically fridged. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think you can make a similar, not quite a strong argument for Sam Wilson. Uh, I think Sam gets a little more time to develop his character in Winter Soldier and then a little yeah. bit in Civil War. Um, but you know, we still don't, these are, these are peripheral characters to our main MCU, you know, first four phase characters. And so I I think, you know, in some ways, like with WandaVision, this show gave us time to actually get to know them a bit more. And I think that was one of the great strengths of this show, despite one of the, you know, whatever else might have been lacking down the road is that we, we spent some time really delving into these characters and got to understand them better. This is sort of, you know, that comic strip Garfield without minus Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) This was Captain America minus Captain America. And I like that because, you know, you you watch Civil War and you see the brief moments of characterization. They get to sneak in with like Bucky and and Sam arguing over who's going to scoot the seat back or forward. They're like the big brother and the little brother who are fighting over who gets to be the favorite of the middle brother who they both really like. And this I, I like that this show was about the two of them kind of figuring out how to be friends with each other and appreciate each other without Steve as an intermediary. I like that it, you know, this show is about Steve in a lot of quiet, subtle ways. Um, And I just generally liked that, like WandaVision, it does spend time with these characters who we saw in the movies and were like, those guys are so interesting. I really want to spend more time with them, you know, but plot, plot, plot. So, you know, it was nice that that it developed and served those characters better and that also Sharon Carter was in it. (laughs) I I think also... We'll get there. uh, We'll get there. We'll get there. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Sam Wilson, you know, is, I would say, the main character in this. And I think Bucky's the sidekick. You know, he's... This show is about Sam Wilson becoming Captain America and that's what they wanted to do. And then they Mm -hmm. put Bucky in it. Well, um, it's about Bucky coming to terms yeah. with his past. Yeah, but he he is like three quarters Falcon. Yeah, it's like Sam. It's Sam reckoning with um what was being asked of him versus like his first and second impulses, and then finally stepping up to the plate, as it were. 
Um, you know, like, because it was by the time he's in the, the, the Wakandan Captain America suit and also wrap your brain around the fact that Wakanda has to be the one to provide him with a Captain America mm-hmm. suit. Um, but by the time he steps up and he does that and he does Captain America in his own way and then gives like the best speech, um, it's evident that he's come a long way from the guy in episode one who has internalized the narrative that was pushed on him, which is they'll never let a black man be Captain America. Um, I think the thing that's remarkable and comes out only a little bit is you're forgetting that Sam and Bucky are effectively like, there's like a hundred year age gap between those two culturally yeah. speaking. Cause, cause, <laughs> Bu- cause Bucky's like a product of Roosevelt's new deal America, basically. And Sam is a pro and Sam is like a Gen Xer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they really have different perceptions and experiences of what America is. And granted Bucky gets revived from the deep freezer every few years so he can go kill people as a brainwashed, brainwashed Hydra assassin. But like, I'm pretty sure no one told him about the advent of people magazine in the 1970s. <laughs> he wasn't and, like popping out every 10 years and like, Oh, yeah. I see sunglasses and Aloha shirts are in now. I guess yeah, I'll change yeah. my style. He had enough time to read The Hobbit, so... <laughs> that was before! <laughs> the Hobbit came out before! I Yeah, okay. Yeah, like, he, he probably came out to do a couple of kills in the 90s and was like, wait a minute, why is everybody dressed like this? <laughs> whereas, you know, Luke whereas, Winter like... Winter Soldier, his new magazine, People, you are uncovered as sexiest assassin alive! <laughs> <laughs> so, it's pretty remarkable when you think about the amount of work Bucky has had to do simply to live in the world, and I like that we got to see a little bit more of that, um... I do think it is a little bit weird and unreasonable to expect these guys to be friends, but it's nice that they are maybe, this sounds weird, distant family, like in a way where they can be counted on to show up for each other, but they don't necessarily have a lot in common otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the 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 thing I I learned just to add like the context of this is uh, how good friends Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie actually are, and that comes oh. through. You can't you cannot oh, man. if you look at the behind the scenes stuff with them, and they've clearly been on press tours together for years now. But they are yeah. oh, they yeah. clearly are very good friends, and that that they have chemistry, and I think that's yeah. that's the part. Absolutely. It's almost like we have to we are people who like each other that kind of have to professionally pretend that we aren't friends, yeah. uh, and that is that's fun. But that's why it's super fun to watch them together is because they have that chemistry. Like, even if they're not supposed to be as friendly, their characters aren't supposed to be as friendly as they are. Uh, Yeah, I'm with you on that. There's a video of the two of them having like a compliment off where they just say nice stuff to each other and it's the greatest thing for like a solid minute like they time it and they have to like compete at like who can compliment the other and it's hysterical to watch. Um, but I think that's part of what makes it fun to watch them together in the show is that they do have the capacity to get along, even if they're not necessarily enjoying the other person's company. It's not like, you know, they, they absolutely get along and it's part of what makes them a good and effective unit of fighting and, and butt whooping, I guess. To get yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so you know, I think obviously, as James mentioned, the show does seem to largely follow Sam. Like Buffy, Bucky's story is a little bit on the peripheral, and I think obviously, as we've alluded to already, uh, a big chunk of that is about the the history of race in America, specifically in relation to Black people. And I again think this is one of the places where the show, as we all sort of discussed at the top, is extremely ambitious in what it's setting out to talk about, and not a thing that again, as Lisa said. 
you necessarily, I think, expected to see in your Disney Absolutely Plus show. Not. Yeah. Um, no, this this show takes all of the the things that people have said on the periphery about superheroes. They are inherently fascist. They are agents of the status quo, and it just says, "Oh, really? Hi, we're going to take those ideas and plunk them right in the middle of the table of this multi million dollar cinematic franchise, so that you cannot look away." And they are going to sit there and you are going to have to look at them and think about them. And we are not going to provide you with easy answers. We are not going to give anybody an out. We're just going to let you sit with that. And I think that's part of why it might feel a little unsatisfying because they don't fix racism. It doesn't magically happen. Even Sam's speech at the end, it starts nudging a massive global bureaucracy in the right direction, but Mm. it doesn't magically fix the whole problem like in, say, the snap of a bejeweled finger. Um, (laughs) It just gets it, it gets that ball rolling just the tiniest bit. So I really like that about this show. I think it stumbles in that there's so much that it's trying to do, and the, the larger plot doesn't always resonate with the themes that it wants to explore. I wonder if that's one of the reasons people are a little bit like, meh, is because there were no easy wrap-ups and there were no easy yeah. resolutions at all. Like, it's nice that Sam's family got their boat fixed, but... We never yeah. see the boat actually like sailing. It is implied that the boat is sort of fixed. God, I hope they didn't <laughs> well, have everybody yeah. cash in all those favors and go and bring engines on board. And they're like, nope, still doesn't work. Send it out to sea. <laughs> but but I think I think that might be intentional, too, because the boat is obviously a metaphor. The boat and the shield are the same thing. It is something that, that is old. It has legacy. It has value. But maybe it's not the right thing for this this time. Do you Do you scrap it or do you fix it? And I like that they didn't end with like, hey, everybody, the boat is sailing. We did it. We fixed it. It wasn't about the 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 end result in that case so much as about the process of doing exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it was also about Sam um, realizing that, like, Sam Wilson is basically your only functional adult in the MCU. And even... <laughs> And even functional adults need to be reminded that it's okay to ask for and to get help. Like, there's a pretty Mm -hmm. strong thread running through the first few episodes that implies that Sam is used to being the fixer and the guy who steps up and helps out. And it literally had not occurred to him that maybe, like, people would like to repay the favor and that you don't have a strong community unless there's reciprocity. And I'm I think like that the whole point to that boat scene and that great montage and all of that was to remind Sam that the real strength in community and maybe even the country <gasps> is when, <laughs> when people are allowed to help each other and move towards a common goal because there's pre-existing goodwill built up. That's one interesting thing I notice about black superhero narratives, whether it's this or Black Lightning or Luke Cage. There's such a strong focus on community, on having to band together because the wolf is always at the door. At the door, yeah. Whereas you've got this romantic myth of people going it alone. Um, and Wanda, and, and say what you about WandaVision, she's very much alone. Like that's the whole point of the series is she's alone in a sitcom house and she's alone in her grief and... I complained frequently through the MCU TV podcast that I'm like, she was a member of the Avengers and literally none of them thought to check on the woman who had lost her boyfriend in a terrible battle and then then blipped back to find he's still dead. Like none of them checked. (laughs) Yeah, A lot lot of them aren't around anymore. We had a lot of feelings about like leaving Wanda high and dry, basically. Let's let's not (laughs) delve too much into WandaVision. (laughs) But, um, But with this, like Sam gets... What I find interesting is Sam's been blipped back for six months and that man already had a full plate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and yeah, 
It's, he had a community, it, family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Th- there's a lot. There's a lot that Sam Wilson has going on, and I think that Sam, as you uh, adroitly point out, is somebody who also I think shies away from the limelight, and he was content to be the person like you know that Steve Rogers could turn to when he knew he needed help and knew somebody like he he knew he could count on him, but resisted necessarily being the one who was out front and center. Especially, yeah, you know, embodying a iconic idea like the idea of America, which is very, you know, obviously problematic as we talk about it in the show. Hey, it's me. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor before we get back to Dan and the gang talking about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, it was very easy to be a private person, but the internet changed all that. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Never tweet. That's my rule. I don't follow it, but it's my rule. The sad truth is data can be crawled through, analyzed, collected, aggregated by third parties. And that means your private life, your decisions, decisions of your past self, is there for anyone to see, to analyze. If you want to help keep your data private going forward, maybe turn to ExpressVPN. There are a bunch of companies out there. Their job is to broker data, to buy and sell data and attach it to people so that they can be sold to. And they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to. They don't have to get your consent. And one of the key data points to identify you is your IP address. That is a unique identifier for you, your family, your home, all the internet that's on your devices. With ExpressVPN, your connection to the internet gets rerouted through a different server, an encrypted server. Your IP address is masked. When you turn it on, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. Makes it much harder for them to pin you down, to identify you, to track you. And it's super easy to use no matter what else you're using to get on the internet. If it's a phone, an iPad, a computer, a laptop, a smart TV, name it. Tap one button and you can get protected. I use this on my iPad. One tap. Boom. That's it. That's it. I launch the app, I tap once, and I'm done. My IP address has changed. I'm in a different place. It's not me. That's great. If you, like me, believe your data is your business and nobody else's, secure yourself. Use the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash Snell, my last name, and you'll get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Snell. Go to expressvpn.com slash Snell to learn more. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting the incomparable. Now, Dan and company, back to you. It, it occurred to me that the thing that Sam and Steve have in common more than anything else is that both of them have been powerless. And once they gain power, they don't forget how being powerless felt. In fact, that's, that's the core of what Sam says to the GRC at the end. He says, remember how helpless you felt. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what I love. And I think the key difference between them is that Steve Rogers was about sacrifice. He was the guy who was going to jump on the grenade for everybody else. He was going to go down with the bomber to save everybody else. Sam Wilson, from the first moment we met him, is about empathy. He was a counselor. He was he was a pararescue jumper, which is like a Navy SEAL on top of a Navy SEAL, plus he's a doctor, uh, or at least an EMT. Um, so he was he was the guy who was jumping into incredibly deadly hostile environments to save people and bring them back. And then he gets home from that and he becomes a counselor for the VA. So empathy is is his whole deal as just as sacrifice with Steve's. 
Yeah, I, I think it's important that we, you know, so talking about power in general, you know, talking about both Sam and C's relation to that, power is also a central theme of this, right? In oh, terms yes. of who has it, who mm. doesn't have it, <laughs> and what they do with it. Uh, and I can think of no better example to discuss that than to talk about John Walker, oh, uh, yeah. who <laughs> enters the fray at the end of episode one as the newly minted Captain America by essentially the U.S. government. And... um kind of gives us an idea of what would happen if uh, i think one of my co-hosts on biff put it well like if they had picked one of those other guys tommy lee jones had picked one of those other guys in captain the first captain america movie to get the one of the ones he wanted to pick yeah. to get the sutra soldier serum we probably would have gotten someone a lot like john uh john walker mm-hmm. you got you got you got um i think what was it qualifications not character if that's, that makes sense among many things yes i yeah. would say that's definitely yeah. one way because they, they talk about, oh, he's got, they did test at MIT and he's off the charts and he was a great guy at West Point and he did all these great missions for the U.S. And those are basically like bullet points on a resume. But no one talks about, hey, John Walker is qualified to do this because he deeply loves this country and because he's genuinely committed to promoting the best of our ideals and defending the defenseless. And so, like none of that comes up. Instead, it's just, look, he has a resume. And he's blonde. And you're like, oh, this yeah. is just, this is like prep school. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> James, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I was going to say what I did like about him is uh, by, you know, at the start of the second episode, we got more of the backstory on him. And he's not completely, you know, a sort of uh, one note evil, whatever, you know, it. I think one of the things I like about the show and also one of the things that made it, I think, more confusing to watch is the fact that everybody's like different shades of gray and Mm -hmm. certainly for a couple of episodes i was like trying to work out who am i supposed to be rooting for in this whole show um so it was it it didn't seem like well you know maybe he will do a good job until you know he he uh the red mist descends and he cuts somebody in (laughs) half of the shield but you know yeah i think the problem with with john walker is that he was never weak he was it seems like he was always the golden boy he he might have he he does remember being nervous like when he would go out and play football but he was like the star quarterback he was never in a you know he was never powerless and he was what he was made to be he was a soldier you remember steve rogers was a terrible soldier he was really bad. He was the individual when he was supposed to be fitting in with a group. He was, you know, bad at everything. And he never actually sees combat before he becomes Captain America. Whereas, you know, John Walker has killed a bunch of people and it is heavily implied has PTSD from that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they they really mess up with John Walker. But I do like how the show tries, especially by casting Wyatt Russell, who if you haven't seen Lodge 49, go see Lodge 49. He is completely different and weirdly the same in both shows. Um, <laughs> well, not, but, not to uh, mention the son of uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, who really yeah. looks like both of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And he's the baddie in Goon too. And mm-hmm. he does a really great job in that as somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be the baddie. It's just that he's never had any other options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, I, I think the PTSD thing is something that's never explicitly called out. It is heavily implied. And I think it also serves as a commentary to a certain degree about, you how know, how poorly our, they treat the veterans, yeah, how like, poorly veterans is, have been treated. Mm. And also to a certain extent, I think there's an argument here for the the at least the perceptional differences between a fight like World War Two and a fight like the wars that we've been engaged in in the last two decades, where 
it's certainly, if nothing else, in that fight in World War II where Steve and Bucky were, you know, fighting against something that I think, you know, most people would agree it's, it's you know, an embodiment of evil, or at least You'd be surprised how, how controversial that idea Yeah, I don't mind getting into that, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say that because yeah. I feel very strongly about it. Whereas yeah. I yeah. think, you know, with something like Afghanistan, it is a far murkier, far more conflicting situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, Walker says at some point, like, I didn't feel great about some of the things we had to do to get those medals. And we never learned exactly yeah. what that is. But, you know, and there I, are heavy that was one thing I was sort of sad about. That was one of those off ramps to nowhere where I just presumed like when they had that conversation about like, would you take the serum? And, you know, of course I would. And, you know, you always make the right decisions when we're in the heat of battle and all of this. I really expected that we would see so, that we would see some moment of that and find and have a more direct line between what he did when he was out on one of his tours and like how that's still sort of messing with him now. And I really expected that. I think the thing about U.S. agent is he has a huge fear of failure because he's never failed. He's never allowed himself. I wouldn't say allowed, but he's never failed. He's never developed the resilience or the coping skills that come along with trying something and failing. And he's never had to rejigger his identity in the face of failure. But like the minute he puts on the Captain America uniform, it is failure upon failure upon failure for this guy. He fails to rally. He fails to rally Steve Rogers friends to his side. Every mission he executes with that uniform on ends terribly. Like there's not a single victory in the bunch. People are persistently getting away. He gets his butt handed to him by anybody he fights. Um, (laughs) The last time he wears the uniform, he ends up murdering a man in public with people, you know, running this on their cell phones. Like this is a guy who had failure upon failure upon failure. And we watched him kind of get more and more tightly wound because he's never had to learn how to come back after falling short of something. And it will be super interesting to see if they're going to pick up that theme and keep going with it in the future. Cause um, when I was watching John Walker, I was also reminded of watching a lot of my fellow students and gifted programs. <laughs> well, and, and how they'd fall apart, like the minute they got a C or didn't make a team or got to college and discovered that everybody was smart. Um, and this is kind of where John Walker is, where he hit a, he hit a situation where he wasn't best in class just by showing up and trying his, and trying his hardest. And he didn't know what to do. Like he lacks the character in the depth. Whereas with the OG Captain America, you had a chronic invalid who had to fight every day just to live until he got the serum. And with Sam, you have a black man in America, which is just, it's, <sighs> and then with Bucky, you have somebody who is a brainwashed assassin who's had to put himself back together. And, Compared to that, you know, Walker's bench of useful experience, especially in an extremely complicated post-blip world, like he has nothing to meet that. And when he faces that, that truth, he can't handle it. And that's why he was ripe pickings for the, for the Contessa. Like she saw that he's a broken person and she's like, I can use this. <laughs> yeah. And in yeah. classic, in classic, perfect, handsome white guy fashion, he fails upward. He murders a man on live television. He is briefly inconvenienced by this, but ends up with exactly the same job and probably even more money and power. Yeah. He's also, he is, I think, essentially an embodiment of white privilege in that way, right? Like it is his conversation with Sam and Bucky in episode two really stands out to me where he's trying to win Sam over to help him. And he almost gets there. 
And at the end, he says, like, you know, it would really help me a lot <laughs> if yeah, you would be because, on board with this. Oh, and and it's like, words. oh, yep, that's oh, where you that's where you stepped in it. It's the minute he makes it clear that that's his motivation. Like, I'm not trying to ha- like, I really don't care about you, except that you help me. Yeah, exactly. Like, And yeah, I need you to help me. Not like we, you know, I would like to have a relationship with you like on, you know, on my own terms. Like, you know, that would be nice. But yeah, as soon as he brings in like, you know, it would be great to me. And and he does that a couple of times. Like, look what you made me do. Yeah. Look what you're making. Me, why are you making me do this? I think he says in the in the yeah. fight yeah, afterward and displacing blame. It's mm-hmm. the same sort of like yeah. There, there's more to it, I think, and and watching that happen is like was sort of frustratingly uh, familiar. I, if in there's point. a false step with him in this show, and I think on the whole that character is really well done as this very problematic, uh, you know, for all the reasons we've discussed. If there's a false step with him, I think it was the last episode where he, <laughs> it feels like Bucky kind of gives him a pass. And I, I really disliked that because he, he, you know, there's a scene where he kind of quips a joke at him about like quoting Lincoln. And I was like, I don't mind having him, you know, picked up the, the U.S. agent brand and sort of running with that because, you know, we are essentially ready to believe this character is an antihero or possibly a villain. It's hard to say, uh, but extremely problematic. But I, I did not love our char- our main characters essentially being like. Ah, well, you know, you killed that guy before, but you helped us out here, so everything's copacetic. I I think part of that is Sam empathizing, realizing that this guy is struggling and trying to do the right thing. And don't forget, Sam kills a bunch of people in the action sequence in the first episode. Uh, as for Bucky, I feel like, what is Bucky going to say? Oh, you murdered someone in cold blood, now you can never, ever be redeemed? Bucky's psychologically <laughs> incapable of saying that That's... because murdering people in cold blood and then trying to redeem himself for it is his whole deal. Yeah, but I think he was completely brainwashed into doing it, whereas, you know, Walker is doing it um, because he was, like, cross, um, which is brainwashed really by his same. country, arguably. Maybe yeah. a thing that Bucky learned in therapy is everyone has to walk their own journey, and all he can really do is give them the space to do it. I don't think Bucky took a lot from therapy, really. <laughs> oh, oh, that okay. This is a really oh. interesting line of discussion because you say I don't think Bucky really took a lot from therapy, and I'm I don't have a strong opinion. <laughs> Why would either you way. say that, James? So let's <laughs> dig into this. No, I, I don't have a strong opinion, so I want to hear why. Why do you think that? Because the show went out of its way to show to to demonstrate that clearly Bucky felt like. It was some sort of useful framework because otherwise you wouldn't have that little gift bag scene in the last episode where he drops off the book and everybody's all crossed through. Yeah, and it's I, evident that, but throughout the the what we saw of him uh, interacting with this therapist, a she seemed to be a terrible therapist, but um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think her ideas were particularly sanctioned by whatever professional body she belonged to. Anyway. Um, but he he's going, be, or, or in fact not going, because he, he gets arrested for the fact that he's not going to his therapy. Um, but he's just like, when he's there, he's just like, I'm here because I'm contractually obliged to. And he's, yeah, he's got his little book of names. And that's really his entire framework for his therapy is to cross names off. And yeah, she gets a gift bag, but I don't think she did much. Sam's the one who helps him make a breakthrough. I think he just wasn't ready to hear it from her. He needed someone he could trust to put it in a language he'd understand. And and she was trying, but, you know, 
he, he didn't want to be there. He was forced to be there. Whereas, you know, with Sam, he's, he's ready to hear it. He's at a place where he, he can hear it and he can understand it. I, I have a question. Where is Steve Rogers? He's on the moon. He's on the moon. Yeah. Well, well yeah, but it's like, as he's far as we know, carbs he's not- for the first time in two decades. <laughs> as far as we know, he's not dead. You know, why did, I, and I mean, I know why, what the answer to this question is, but, you know, why did nobody like ring him up and say, you know, Sam ring him up saying, I'm kind of having a problem with this whole S.H.I.E.L.D. thing. I mean, I, have a think, conversation with I think the show wants us to, I think the problem is ultimately this has to be a problem, a thing that they work out for themselves and, and leaning on Steve. It's the idea that even if Steve isn't dead, he's not going to be there forever. And... <laughs> And I think, yeah. you, you, you know, arguing about the, the exact he wears and whys of where he is, I mean, that gets into the sort of the time travel shenanigans at the end of Endgame. He may not be in this universe, um, but he is, I think that the fact is, at the end of the day, this is a, a path they have to walk for themselves. And having Steve around to sort of give his imprimatur or whatever is, again, it, especially when you you have the, the black man who wants to pick up the mantle having it need to have the okay from the white guy who held it before is yeah, awkward. Yeah. I mean, that's awkward. I, I I kind of did expect, you know, old Steve Rogers to turn up in the last scene and give him a thumbs up from a crowd or something. But... <laughs> I feel like that I might undermine some of the like, message. He's got like a little baseball hat on and his little tan jacket. Just nods to himself and disappears yeah. into the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay, Bucky and Therapy, like I felt like we got some moments where uh, I think... I mean, I felt like we talked about this on on MCU TV. Um, I I feel like we got some moments where um, Bucky started realizing, like that it that he was getting help and that it actually that he actually wasn't as close to being the Winter Soldier as he sort of thought he was. And I think we got a couple of moments of that when he seemed extremely uncomfortable in the bar in Madripoor, uh, when he was cosplaying as the Winter Soldier, and how he it, because he said at one point like you know i felt how easy it was to get back to that and i think he also didn't like how easy it was to get back to that and so i think we get a little bit of kind of accidental growth out of bucky uh here and there and like when he talks to carly and says you know like i've done this and i know like i've done what you're doing and it do i know it doesn't end well and when he tries to tell john walker the same thing you know, like, I know you think that this is going to be great, but I'm here to tell you, like, it's not. And so I feel like we got some moments where we could tell that, like, the guy that we met at the beginning of the Captain America movie was still in there somewhere. And we get, you know, that moment, which is, a, which is you know, therapy in its own way, the moment uh, in Wakanda when uh, Io reads the words to him and nothing happens. That was an incredible scene. That was my favorite scene, I think, with Bucky in the whole thing. I was, yeah. Uh, that and, that um, and him flirting with Sarah. I think those are my yeah. favorite oh, <laughs> I was disappointed him. he didn't do that at the party at the end. I really was waiting for there to be more, like, eyes between the two of them. That, that would have been it, great. It was but a nice I'm scene for me. Bucky made, yeah. I just I'm want sorry, to say too. it was a nice scene for me because I, I thought it was the clearest peek through to the Bucky Barnes that we see in those opening scenes of First Avenger. Where he's yes. the ladies' man and he's got some charm and he it like it felt like a find him finding a part of himself that was still there was there. actually some Bucky in there and not just Winter Soldier yeah and that's uh, yeah those human more human moments were the ones that I appreciated 
and also turning the screws on Sam in a big way. (laughs) But um, the, the scene I loved, and it was maybe my favorite scene of the final episode was Bucky, um, Bucky opening the door, tearing open the door to save the people who are trapped in the burning vehicle. And they say, thank you. You saved me. And there's that moment on his face, like, Oh my God, I can do more than kill. I can, I can use this to help people. And yeah, and then in the end, he doesn't have a big slugfest fight with the Flag Smashers. He defeats them without firing a shot yeah. by mm-hmm. thinking instead. Go ahead, Lisa. That, that, I, I think the thing that it makes me <laughs> is, is you are a bunch of fugitives. And they're, they're, not only do you have law enforcement on your tail, you also have a homicidal power broker who wants you. Why do you have location services turned on your phones during a firefight? <laughs> and I'm a hundred years old. Let me tell you, I don't know much about cell phones, but I know this. Um, yeah, it just it makes no sense to me. I realize that well, they all came from refugee camps, and opsec is not something that you're focused on when you're trying to survive. Let's but, let's talk uh, about the flag smashers a bit, right? Yeah. Because I think I think most. I'm curious to see if you agree, but I think a lot of the conflicting feelings about this show revolve around the, 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 the flag smashers, how they're constructed, what their motivation is and whether or not we are supposed to root for them uh, and how that was sort of constructed. I mean, I knew that Carly had to die at the end of this because she was too morally complex to remain in the MCU. (laughs) And and the, I'm sorry. That's the biggest cop out. That's the least interesting thing she could have said at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she yeah. could have said, "Oh, by the way, the power broker's actually Sharon." That's what I would have said with my last breath. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> I was disappointed in how she how she went out because I felt like her, particularly because of what happens immediately after she dies when they round up all the flag smashers and put them in a nice explodey van. Um, you know, I. Uh, what I didn't like about it was it didn't seem like she had any any impact beyond like the events of the show, right? So like we don't see any any inkling of they're continuing to be flag smashers. We don't see any inkling of anyone else like really rallying around her cause because even by the end, like she's more she's on the verge of losing those four or five people that are with her there at the end when she says one world and nobody replies. So I, I also presumed she was going to end up dying, but I also, I think I expected to get a little more out of it than that from her at the end. So yeah, it did feel a little um, cheap, I guess. So it's just, this show is so overstuffed that it doesn't have it wants to do so much, and I admire that about it, but it doesn't have the space it needs to to make her a fully realized character. Erin Kellyman does such a good job with the character. She's terrific. I mean, when you can make a movie oh, more, more interesting just by like taking off a helmet like she did in Solo, <laughs> you know yep. that that person is a really good actress. And she's terrific. But yeah, there's there's an interesting gem of an idea there of an ordinary person who suddenly finds themselves with all this power and it loses their way in trying to make these decisions. And I like what the Flag Smashers were fighting for. I like that we were supposed to feel sorry for them. But then, like, she kills a bunch of human beings just because she's mad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's there's There's no moment, like, you can understand why John Walker breaks bad and kills that guy. It's maybe a little contrived, but you can get all the steps that lead up to him 
killing a dude with Captain America's shield. When Carly decides to blow people up, she's sad that her foster mom died. This show, I mean, the show doesn't do her as dirty as it does Sharon Carter. Sharon Carter is maybe the most done dirty character in the entire we'll MCU. Discuss, we'll get there. Yes. We'll get there. <laughs> but but oh, yeah. yeah, it, it doesn't. It the, doesn't. It doesn't do the work. I think is the the problem. Yeah. It doesn't do there's the Zemo, show the work to lead up to that. Yeah, there's Zemo and the Power Broker and the Wakandans and the Flag Smashers and the GRC and John and and all each of these individual threads is interesting. But like the Zemo Power Broker GRC Flag Smasher stuff does not play into the themes the way Sam's story and even Bucky's story and John Walker's story and Isaiah Bradley's story do. And so they they just. I mean, and I love, like, I love Derek Kolstad. I love the John Wick movies. And, you know, you want to bring our heroes into a colorful underworld populated with larger-than-life characters, you bring in Derek Kolstad, the genius move. But it just doesn't fit with That's a different show. That was a different show. And I think that was the the reason episode three is the weakest is it is a show. Yeah, it's another show from the one that we're watching. So the problem with Carly's characterization is... (sighs) They don't nail her down um, because they make a point. Sam makes a point of calling her a teen in the last episode. And I kind of wish we had actually gotten more of a sense of her being a very young adult who's been forced into an impossibly adult role due to circumstances beyond her control and that she's acting like a kid would act. We don't really get that sense early on. And we get, I mean, this is why I feel like this is why she says, I'm sorry when she's dying because she's a kid. She's a kid talking to an adult that she quasi trusted and actually tried to learn something from even while she was opposed to him. And she needs that bit of adult slash parental comfort as, as she leaves the world. And I wish we had seen that earlier. I wish we had seen how that, that teen combination of idealism and not being able to think out game out consequences because you haven't lived them and lack of impulse control. And I feel like the show did her dirty because they turn her into, Oh, the ends justify the means. Well, kill and kill again. Ha 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 ha. And like, it didn't have to be like that. You could have dialed that back by like a factor of 10 and she still could have been somebody where you had the final scene where Sam was like, Think about why she set herself in opposition to the world government. I, I was going to say, you, you mentioned about it seeming like it came from a different series. And I think mm-hmm. there is an interesting series to be made about, you know, the post-blip world and yes! you know, all this stuff. <laughs> and and they, they should have done that as well, you know, another, yes! spin up another show. Yeah, far, uh, far be it for me to say, like, uh, so many of the Marvel non-MCU admittedly shows that have been on the air for the last several years often felt like they floundered throughout 13 episodes. Here's a show that was six episodes and honestly, I think needed to be at least eight if they yes. really wanted mm-hmm. to do all of this. Um, I, I appreciate wanting to get it done in a very concentrated form, but it felt like they tried to do too much in not enough time. And, and like the, the, discussing the whole, like the nature of what's a terrorist, what's a revolutionary and all that stuff, I think was interesting as well. And it it just kind of gets swept away because they need to get Sam into a shiny new uniform. I would love to see a blips, a post blip series, because I'd love to see people who are like, you know what, this world actually was pretty good. And now we have twice the people we did. And mm-hmm. we have a dearth of opportunities. And who do the Avengers think they are? They broke this, they broke this again. Like, 
I don't understand why why people are like, yes, what the Avengers did is good. It's great that we have millions of people in the world who are unemployed and angry and committing terrorist acts and the economy has been thrown into disarray. Hooray. Thank God we've put people in uniforms. Like, you, well, you, can, you can see all the people running around in Thanos was right t-shirts. And- <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. Uh, yeah, to add to that, I think an interesting dynamic that we don't see play out as much, though they hint at it in this, is the, the difference of it on a scale versus an individual level. We have the guy in the very first episode who thanks Sam for bringing his family back uh, in the street in Morocco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's like, I can understand why all these people who lost loved ones are happy to have them back. But yes, it doesn't address the issue at scale of now we have billions of people who weren't here for five years. So mm-hmm. I, I think that is an interesting story. Not this story that they quite managed to fit in here. And I agree with all of you that Carly's backstory you know all of it we already see her uh, having organized the flag smashers having taken the super soldier serum by the time the series starts and it doesn't give us a lot of room to discover who was this person why did she make the decisions that she did also if you have someone who's like she's a master of disguise she can blend into any crowd and then you cast aaron kellyman one of the most visually distinctive actors you have ever seen (laughs) yes it's a little it's a little a little bit of a stretch um but i I did think that uh, that that one thing the series did well, and the way the one thing it did that bridged the two competing halves, the the larger world and the race in America half, was the idea of oh, you you like all that cool stuff you see in the movies? Well, it has consequences that trickle down to the lives of ordinary people. You don't get to see that in the movies. We're going to show it to you here. Yeah. And that goes through everything from Carly and the Flag Smashers to Isaiah Bradley and his fellow experimentees having to be the guinea pigs for a super soldier serum. And that was something I really liked, that it is trying to engage with something that the movies you know, make you feel good and they kind of gloss over. And this actually stops to think, what would this be like for everyday people? But what what's going to happen when we get the next movie? It's going to be glossy, shiny, quippy, whatever again. Well, it's it's. I th- I feel like there's kind of a bricks shiny. bricks and mortar uh, approach here, where the movies build the bricks and the mortar is provided by a TV shows that sort of fill in some of the details. But it, it is it is difficult when you have a a again it's something I think has not been attempted as much on uh, movies and television of this whole huge world that they're building out. And we have the opportunity to see it in different formats, whether it be on TV or in a movie. And there's different things that those are good at. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Zemo, too, since he was mentioned. Uh, Daniel <laughs> Bruhl brought back from uh, his role in, in Civil War. And I think I would argue uh, interesting to have him positioned as almost an anti-hero. I think, here more than a villain. He's not a good guy, for sure. But he also is a, I think Sam puts it really, or sorry, Bucky puts it really well when they break him out of prison and said, like, he has a code. And I think that, if nothing else, he is very consistent in the way that he acts throughout this entire show. And I appreciated that aspect. And he's not a good guy, but he's got some good ideas. (laughs) He's also got some bad ideas, let's be clear. What you will about the tenets of national Zemo is, at least it's an ethos. (laughs) At least it's an ethos, dude. Yeah, like like all the best villains, and I think Zemo is the best MCU villain because he wins. Even more than Thanos, he wins. He gets everything he wants, and even when he loses, he wins. He's really Um, effective. He knows how to get stuff done. but, But he has a point. 
His whole country, his wife, his kids, his whole country went kaboom because a snotty billionaire thought he would take shortcuts to protect the world and ended up making his whole country destroyed. And then it yeah. got picked, you know, they didn't even try to rebuild it after that, just let it get picked to scraps and, and built a nice statue in its place. And a thing that that I sort of had forgotten uh, in all of the, the movies and TV and everything else. Um, so uh, for people who, who aren't listening to MCU, uh, I, I mentioned occasionally that this time around, uh, Mr. Kelly was watching this one with me and hasn't watched a lot of Marvel movies. And so it was interesting to see his reaction to stuff. And so uh, uh, throughout this, we watched, we went back and watched some of the movies. Like if you want like, let me show you where Bucky came from. Let me show you how we all met Sam, you know, and, and let's give you some more background and maybe some of this stuff will make more sense. And when we went back, I had kind of, I knew Zemo was a bad guy, but I had forgotten how diabolical he was in weaponizing the Avengers against themselves <laughs> and like and how solid that logic was. Like, you know, all I'm going to do is let them tell the tear themselves apart. Like, I'm going to wind them all up, but they're going to do all the work. And like, I had sort of forgotten how that was um, like terrifyingly brilliant of him to do and so what like watching that over again was fascinating so then like sort of having gotten a refresher on Zemo then coming back to this show and watching him do exactly what he was doing and then also uh, watching him get called out that was sort of my other favorite when Sam's like he's just gonna tilt his head and try and manipulate you I think is what he says and <laughs> I that, like that Zemo automatically adjusts his head angle when he hears that <laughs> Zemo straightens out his neck uh like what like the some of those moments like the friction between the three of them was also you know really like entertaining to watch and watch but like i sort of like as a villain like you said like i think he's my favorite of uh and and probably the greatest so far in the mcu of the villains because of that like he sat down and thought about what he could do to exact his revenge and what he found was like let them blow themselves up which was a really which like i said diabolical was like the best word i could come up with for it so remembering that that's who he was then like watching all of his interactions with everyone else was pretty interesting. And we got him in two movies and we got way more Zemo development in this show than we did in both of those films. Pretty much. Oh, I love Zemo so much. He's so fun to watch. <laughs> well, and he's so interesting because we yes. sort of get where he's coming from with all of this. Like, we, only get him in, about. we only get him in one movie, don't we? Yes. yes. Yeah. And he's got such tremendous personal style. <laughs> like, I love that this is a guy who, rather than countenance the prospect of spending his life in a cell next to a bunch of flag smashers, simply dispatches his butler to blow them up. It's just such an elegant yeah. solution. <laughs> Well, it's, it's panache it's, it's, is what yeah, it is. Yes, yes. And he keeps his townhouses stocked with all these nice things. And, I, and candy. I was, yeah. I was like, when I saw that, so he keeps the Turkish delight and he mentions it was his son's favorite. And part of me was like, this is the best, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe shout out I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, I thought so too. And then part of me was like, how unbearably poignant that 
he keeps this connection to his murdered son. It's this and reminder, yeah. It's this it's 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 like he's deliberately twisting a little splinter in his finger to remind himself of why he is who he is now. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he has all these resources and all this wealth and he's chosen to stay in this place of bereaved fury and and work from it, period. Um but yeah, Panache, like the way he just watches everybody fight and is like, all right, I'm piecing out to my secret bathroom escape tunnel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everything about him on screen just delighted me beginning to end. And oh yeah. We need well, we need more supervillains like that in the MCU. I I find if they have grudges, whatever, but like just have somebody who's like, I like nice things and I'm very good at doing what I do, and I have a very different point of view than you do. And um I am going to ruin your day. <laughs> but it's but it's nothing personal. Yeah. I'll just do it because I, I have to. And he doesn't, like every supervillain in the MCU, almost, if you look at them, they're seeking power. They want the ultimate power of this. Zemo does not want power. He wants to keep other people from having power. When he is given power, he throws it away because he doesn't want it and he doesn't need it. That is such an interesting inversion. And I really... I just like that, but I also like that we got to see Zemo be funny. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's because like he's he's more complex in how he goes about his villainy. Um, you know, and and it's not like you said, it's not seeking power. That's that's not what it's for. And like you know, for the most part, like he doesn't have a dog in this fight, and so that's part of what makes him so interesting in the first place and you know and it's not uh like some it's not i i don't like sam and it's not i don't like bucky it's you know and it, in it's fact, a much kind of likes them both he, like, yeah, he, he even like, apologizes to bucky it's nothing he personal has, he's fascinated by sam because he has that conversation where he's like, would you take the serum? And Sam goes, oh, no. And he's like, that was really fast. And oh, really, like he's really impressed that Sam has that kind of moral certitude and and is not tempted at all. And I think he respects Sam in a weird way. Um, he's He's got a very he, he has noblesse oblige. And I love that he's a baron because barons are like the maddest of all the gentry. Oh, how we love we love a baron on him. We love TV. a baron. Like dukes are just doing their their ducal things. Just, and yeah, V-cons are can I'm a V-cunt. I'm decad- like barons are the ones who always have castles and science experiments. And I love that Baron Zemo continues in that rich tradition of of being both into nice things and utterly mad. <laughs> I, I like him a lot. I would argue that if you, I would argue you could skew this narrative about 15 degrees. And he is the guy who is doing his darndest to fight against a group of superpowered entities who refuse to hew to any accountability whatsoever and mm-hmm. have begun systemically stacking power structures to always support them. Like that, that could be just as plausible narrative. Yeah. Just give him a, a Loki-style spin-off show, or, oh, or, yeah. or indeed put him in Loki. <laughs> like a portion of every episode of MCU TV is Lisa and I sort of wandering off and like pitching new show, new MCU-style shows, you know, and uh, and that's one of the ones we talked about was uh, oh, it was Doctor Doom as the mm. hero. That's yes. what it was. For uh, years, Lisa's I have favorite. contended that Doctor Doom, like a, a a show where Doctor Doom is the hero, is great. I would take a show where. Like, if Zemo has to lead a team because, like, 
Suicide Squad, except MCU happens. And, Thunderbolts. Um, Thunderbolts, yeah. yeah. I think, yes, there you go. <laughs> there are no new ideas, just new policies. <laughs> this, is our, this, is, this is part of our hope with, yeah. uh, with getting the Zemo attention that we got in this go-around is that that's where we're headed with him, ultimately. No, I that just really like exciting. Zemo. Right, listen, peasants, this is how we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you- I love it. So if we're going to, we've talked about a bunch of the different threads that are happening here. And I think the one that we've left out and I will connect them because I don't think the show uh, overtly connects them, but I think thematically there are connections. Um, first of all, the power broker and Sharon Carter. Uh, and I also had the contested to that as well, because I think that she plays in a similar space. I think this is another place. The show, unfortunately, feels like it lost track a bit. I uh, Sharon Carter, who, of course, we, we met in Winter Soldier and is the great niece of Peggy Carter and then shows up again. Civil War helps out Steve and Sam and Bucky and for her, uh, you know, part in that basically gets canned uh, and has to go overseas. I think this show struggles a lot with what to do with Sharon. It wants to tell an interesting story. It wants to give Emily Van Camp something a little more fun and uh, substantive to do. But it, it does feel like maybe it goes a little bit off the deep end. And I will add telegraphs its moves something terrible because i think we all tried to come up with plausible explanations for oh this must be a head fake sharon can't be the power broker and in the end it's exactly what we all thought sharon was the power broker it it was sharon all along (laughs) yeah that's right i would love to see a bop where it's emily van camp and uh catherine oh god i'm blanking her last name now um catherine Hahn. Thank you. Yes. Both of them just giving looks to the camera because Emily Van Camp has like one of the meanest looks in the business. And I mean that as a compliment. Like I watched her on Revenge and I enjoyed it. And my whole point, my whole problem with Revenge is I was like, how can anyone possibly think this woman is anything other than distilled evil? Like, Oh, it's because you never watched her on Everwood where she is the delightful Amy Abbott. And you're like, oh, how could she ever do anything bad? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That must be it. Because I saw her and I was like, look at her face. Her face is scheming and crafting. Literally 100% of the time. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I have to say, this does not speak well of Steve Rogers. Steve, you kissed a girl. You got her to <laughs> blow up her entire career. She is the, the grandniece of your lady love. She, she, You got her disowned, and then you apparently didn't speak to her for like seven years? You did oh, oh, reach oh, oh, out? Oh, oh, oh. No, 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 I can counter this. I can counter this because I had the same, <laughs> I had the same, Nathan, I went through the same emotional journey. I thought you were going to say you did this to someone else, Lisa. Yeah, this guy helped me out. No, no, screw you. No, no. So, Nathan, I was like, what the heck, Steve Rogers? You, you know, you, you jaunt around the world with your little Earthsats family of Sam and Wanda and Natasha, and you can't be bothered with Sharon. And then I um, was watching Avengers Endgame. And you get to the scene where they have like the little confab saying, okay, we've taken a census of who's here and who's not. And you see all the, 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 the beautiful headshots that people pop up. Scott Lang missing, Hope Van Dyne missing, um, Shuri missing. And one of the ones that's listed as missing is Sharon Carter. So I promptly invented a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> and my backstory is this. The reason Steve thinks Sharon has been blipped 
is because he's been in touch with Sharon for the past two years. And she's the one who said to him, all right, listen, dummy, this is how OPSEC works. We go our separate ways. I'm going to stay put in Madripoor because I happen to know people and there's a safe house that I can use and I can lay low on the radar. I'll be your eyes and ears on this end. I'll be your safe house in Madripoor. Check in with me from time to time. So Steve has. And then when he can't get hold of her after the blip, he assumes that Thanos has snapped her out of existence. So the only question we have now is, one, was she snapped out of existence? And is the real Sharon Carter back? And like, what the hell has this person wearing my face been doing for the last five years? Or did Sharon decide that the the blip was a great way to reset and be like, oh, I can fake my own disappearance and become the power broker? Because why not? It's a chaotic world. It's a great time to start amassing a power base. And then I'm working from a position of power when the U.S. government gets its feet back under it again. Yeah. I mean, as a fan, I hate this. I want Sharon to be a good guy. But thinking logically, this is a good move. It may not have been well executed, but it gives her character agency for the first time that she has been in any of the movies, because otherwise she has always been helping someone else do the thing that they want to do. Right. And also the beautiful irony of an Agent Carter being Captain America's worst enemy is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I love that in a show that that prides itself on moral ambiguity, the clearest cut villain is lovable Sharon Carter. <laughs> well, I, I don't get, like, when they turn up in Madripoor and, like, they know there's this terrible power broker who has all this influence, and then they meet Sharon, who's, like, running some... She's got this big party with all these people uh, and there's influence and they're trading all these paintings. And nobody goes, I wonder if Sharon's the power broker. <laughs> Maybe she's like another power. She's a power broker. That's that's probably it. That's probably yeah. it. No, I, I don't <laughs> mind the idea that she felt abandoned by, you know, the the government that she had served, etc., um, yeah. but it did, I, I will argue that at times and Lisa's headcanon, notwithstanding that, that work is again, <laughs> is that work I'm is not shown. <laughs> yeah. The, the work is not shown. And I feel like they, they were, it was clumsily handled. I don't, uh, you know, characters making characters into villains, totally fine with that. Um, but I do think that they didn't do a great job of giving her a little more time to grow into that role. Again, it felt like something that was just with a couple more episodes, maybe you get some more time yeah. to spend on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that was a tricky, a tricky needle you, to you thread. You do have to accomplish what she's accomplished. What you do have sure, to like, yeah, give yeah. props to what, like she's very effective with what she does. I love a competent woman. And, and she gets that great fight like, scene in uh, episode uh, two or yeah. three. And, yeah. like, yes. and it's weaponized competence at that, like literally a couple of times. Part of what we sort of kicked around as an idea when when we met her in the episode named The Power Broker, and we meet one new character in that episode, and it's Sharon. Um, the thing that I liked about it was uh, that when we were sort of kicking around was like, maybe the reason she's the power broker is, you know, at least initially before we knew how everything turned out, was that um, they were, this was still S.H.I.E.L.D. looking for the super soldier serum. And having like shield in charge of something that's kind of sketchy, but allows everybody to keep an eye on the bad guys seemed like a good system. So we were sort of hoping that like still deep down, she was a good guy. Yeah. Um, it's fun this way. 
and I do like it, but um, it was sort of a uh, it was it was sort of disappointing that that was how it ended up. So I've heard a number of people saying, "Well, maybe she's a scroll, or yep. maybe this." Oh, we and- did like that too. Yeah. We did that. And I also was for a while floating the theory, maybe Sharon is set up as the power broker because like this is a Nick Fury scheme where he's like, listen, things are going to be super chaotic. So you may as well be the one, like how much more embedded in a criminal underworld can you be than if you're running a criminal underworld organization? So this is you collecting lots of information. You're secretly brokering power for the good of the planet. I I Um, really love that the conspiracy theories always come down to Nick Fury is behind everything somehow. I feel like it's, I feel like it's the Occam's razor of the MCU. Not implausible. Where's the lie, Dan? Yeah, but (laughs) Nick Fury's off in space having fun. He doesn't care. (laughs) <laughs> or is he? We we don't know. Um, so yeah, I will uh, I will sort of say in addition to that. So we get the Contessa introduced here, um, played by Julia oh, Louis Dreyfus. How we um, love her. having who all I, of the fun. Yeah, all of who it. eats every piece of scenery that comes her way, and then some. Um, I and I clearly I think what's I interesting about this. I look forward to her Yelp reviews of scenery. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> uh, I think one thing to look at for both this, I would say, her and Walker and Sharon to a large degree is. It feels like those are going somewhere, you know, and and I think, interestingly, the stuff I've been reading in the past week or two make it feel like Disney has left it open for this being a show that gets a second season as opposed to WandaVision, which very much, you know, was implied to be one and well, done. Can we jump in there for a minute? Because I feel like this was a, the second show out of two Disney Plus shows where we got trolled hard (laughs) because the first one was in wandavision when uh ralph showed up and uh and like if you were real quiet you could hear the internet conspiracy machine spinning up as soon as he stepped on stepped into the the frame and we had like we had fun with it over on our show and there were so 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 many theories and if you watch this show, when it starts out, it's the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That's so weird to say. And when we get to the end, it says Captain America and the Winter Soldier. So yes, they are probably correct that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier will only be one season. But that's because we are either going to start getting seasons of Captain America and the Winter Soldier, or we're going to get season. Somebody else said... um, uh, like we're only going to get one season of uh, the the Falcon and the Winter Soldier because Sam and Bucky come back in Captain America and the White Wolf, you know, or well, something. Or, and I'm like, and Captain America four at this point now, the Hollywood Reporter is suggesting that that is uh, that is a thing that is happening with Malcolm Spellman, who is who was the showrunner for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, although unclear as of yet whether who exactly is in that. <laughs> But it does seem as though, you know, the, the MCU in its traditional way is setting up things to pay off way down the road. And yeah. none of these characters are characters that exist in a vacuum. And yeah. I, I saw someone on the Internet had mocked up Captain America and the brother-in-law with Bucky <laughs> flirting with Sam's <laughs> sister. Oh, my gosh. No, I'm, I'm really surprised by how much I like Bucky now. Because, like I said, I found him unspeakably boring. Yeah. He's, well, he's very there, was, there wasn't much to yeah. Bucky. Like the like what we knew of Bucky was was little to none, and what we knew was not particularly interesting. 
you know, I, overall. As I think I said on the Biff episode, the first after the first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the scene where he is in his therapy and we have the cutaways to him catching the Hydra senator that he has put in place uh, uh-huh. was like in five minutes, Sebastian Stan did more to make me like Bucky Barnes than like every single movie appearance <laughs> yes, he has been in today. Yes, when he's like, okay, yeah. the conditions of, I have to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And to zoom out a little bit, like that's part of what I have enjoyed about both the series that we've gotten so far is I've really enjoyed the chance to dig in a little bit with Wanda and the chance to dig in with vision and dig in with Sam and Bucky and get to know a little more about these characters. And this is just another testament to casting, which we've also talked about is that these are, these are parts that are being played by people who can carry them. And, you know, they, they built an entire show around Elizabeth Olsen and she could carry it. And they built a show around Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan and they carried it. And though like the casting pieces of this are also like really great because they're so much fun to watch. Like we already talked about it's It's so much fun to watch them. And, you know, for being the Falcon and the Winter Soldier as comic book characters, when you just think about them, like without the movies, like if somebody tell if you don't know anything about the MCU and somebody sits down and tells you, you know, Fa- the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like they get a TV show, like most comic nerds would still be laughing if they didn't have any inkling of what the cinematic universe looked like. And so that's another thing that I've appreciated about this is that I'm also getting to watch interesting television that is that is done by people who are very good at what they do. And can we talk real quick about Carl Lumley as Isaiah Bradley? Yeah, please can again. we? He is brilliant. I've I've liked Carl Lumbly for years. I liked him in Justice League Unlimited as the Martian Manhunter. I liked him on Alias. Alias, yep. This is Alias, the most incredible yeah. performance I've ever seen him give. And so in the comics, Isaiah Bradley, the super ser- soldier serum reduces him to the intellect of a child, which oh um, wow, yeah, yeah. And this this is oh. in a, a series written and drawn by black men. Um, so I, I that that was always an odd kind of I, it was meant to be kind of a tragic uh, thing that here's the guy who served his country and in the end like he doesn't get to remember or enjoy it, um, but I liked that they they let Bradley be sharp and perceptive here and and that they took time to let you sit with his story and feel the full horror of it and I liked that at the mm-hmm. end Sam leaves him officially dead but. Said, goes to the government and says, "Hey, this guy who was a fish who who is dead, you should tell his story too." And he gets his story told. If you if you pause and you read, you can read the actual yes. text next to the and it is a it is a full fascinating story of Isaiah Bradley and his fellow test subjects. And it does not paint the government in a good light. At least no. there's like three paragraphs on it, and the two that I was able to pause it and and read. Um, yeah, like the government said he was dead. Like there, it, you know, the whole thing is very factual in relaying. It tells you what kind of Captain America Sam is going to be too, because what he does is he focuses on both reparative and restorative justice when he holds the U.S. government to account. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Steve Rogers wouldn't have done that. I'm saying that Steve approached being Captain America very differently than Sam does, where Sam obviously sees a very different type of America than Steve does. And he's established really early on that this isn't a, this is his superpower as Captain America is, is believing we can, we can and should always be doing better. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I, I love that they just put it right out there though. Like, and it's up to the viewer to pick that up. 
mm-hmm. yeah there's there's some corny and very obvious stuff here but it is so heartfelt that it still works whether it's sam's speech at the end or a lot of the the discussions that they have earlier on like between sam and carly um mm-hmm. it, it's cheesy it comes right out and says the thing. Maybe there's a more artful way you could have done it, but there is just so much sincerity and earnestness, which for a series about Captain America, I think it works. So I actually think it's a generational passing of the torch in the MCU in general. Because if you look at the MCU, which is founded with <laughs> founded by Tony Stark, um, you've got a Gen X, Gen X director in John Favreau, and Kevin Feige is a Gen Xer, and Tony Stark is arguably a Gen Xer, and so there's a little bit of that ir- irony and um, pop culture reflexiveness and quippiness, which is that's kind of what Gen X did in terms of the way they approached things and defined a discourse. And we're passing now to the millennials who are like, no, there's there's a lot to be said for being sincere and being authentic. And we're moving from where superheroes call people, you know, funny, amusingly insulting names while they fight to superheroes who ask bigger questions about why they do what they do. <laughs> that's true. I will say I, I just rewatched Iron Man 3 over the last couple nights and it struck me how jarring the tone was in some ways compared to coming right? off Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The MCU yeah. has definitely evolved over the uh, the past decade or two. I, I wanted to put in a quick word too about the production just overall, uh, reminding us once again that, that there is no daylight basically between TV and movies anymore when you can have that helicopter sequence both in the first and last episodes of the Falcon and the Winter yeah. Soldier that looks... As good as anything that has been put on screen, I think, in, in the MCU films. Yeah, uh, that, mm-hmm. that first action sequence, Kari Skoglund. I mean, I know a lot of this is Marvel and their previous team, but still, Kari Skoglund deserves a lot of credit. I thought she was a terrific director all through this series, and any incoherence, I don't think it was her fault. Um, and I, I, I feel bad saying that because, like... Again, I have so much respect for the writing on this show and what it tried to do, even though it didn't quite succeed. I'm not sure that was their fault either. I think there was there must have been time constraints. There's talk that they had to rewrite around the pandemic yeah. and they had to change things. Just the fact that they set out with so much ambition and so much heart. Like I said, I'd rather see a big swing for the fences than a safe bunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any more uh any more thoughts as we sort of wrap up our discussion here? Anybody else wanna chime in with anything we didn't talk about or I so enjoyed this series. Um it wasn't funny and fun in a way I think people might have been expecting from the previews where there's clipping. And I would argue that WandaVision was certainly funny and fun, like in the first two to three episodes, like where there's just this lighthearted hang. But I really just enjoyed being able to sink into this world. And there's so many loose ends and so many questions I have. And to me, that is part of the fun. So you know, I liked it. I like. I would say I actually liked this series more than I liked WandaVision because I think mm-hmm. this is a series that sets up the next five to six years of the MCU and um, mm-hmm. some of the thematic things we're going to see. And I love the excitement at the start of anything new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I also prefer this to WandaVision, and I think part of it is the potential because what I got out of WandaVision, like I don't think we're going to really be able to return to that. Like we might get more Darcy, we might get more Agent Wu, but we're not going to get like the WandaVision world because that was a very like that was an absolutely like a one and done unit of entertainment. And what I like about this is the potential. Like once you get to the end of it, like 
We've got a brand new Captain America. What's his deal going to be? We've got Bucky working it out. What's his deal going to be? We've got U.S. agent on the scene. We've got the Contessa. We've got uh, Sharon coming into her own for good and evil, both at the same time. So like where like all of that gives gives me so much more to do. And I think that's part of where I was also sad about this being uh, six episodes instead of eight, which feels so weird to say like this was this was a a, a unit that could have used two more episodes <laughs> when a lot of times we're like we could have shaved off a couple of episodes and it would have been fine. Um, so I, I do wish this had expanded, but part of it is just because I had such a blast in that world and in that universe and finding out like who everyone was and what they were up to and, and all of the development in that. And I really enjoyed it. So I hope that I hope that this does branch off into other things down the line. James, you want to add anything? Um, I was just going to say, um, while I enjoyed the androids, aliens and wizards speech, it, f- it felt yeah. like they had got Joss Whedon in to do like a script doctor line on the mm, whole thing. And it just, critique. It, I enjoyed the line, but it just jarred completely with the rest of the tone of the series. Hmm. Yeah. No, I okay. think, I yeah. think there's a lot happening here. I, I think Kelly makes a great point about setting up stuff in the future. And, um, you know, and Lisa's point about reframing the MCU. I think what one thing this show really does is sort of take the last of the old guard and put them in these major positions where they are primed to influence the next generation of heroes yeah uh, in the same way that the you know i feel like after the first avengers movie you have like you know scarlet witch and war machine and vision and and falcon all brought in there i, I think they're now set up to be sort of the as it were elder states people of the MCU as the MCU develop out, develops out a lot of its newer and younger characters. And it also shows us mm-hmm. how this massive franchise can make that transition when you simply cannot keep these characters around forever. Um, and yeah. I, I think that that says a lot about where we're going and what's being set up here. And I think that's, that's really cool. Um, all right. Well, we have given a thorough uh, look at the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, and uh, I will see if they come back for another season or if we're moving on to something else. But I think the next show to air on Disney Plus uh, in the MCU is Loki, which starts I want to say June 11th. Um, so there's that a little bit right. of time, a little bit of time between now and then for you to get all your MCU ducks in a row, as it were. I would like to thank our panel this week, Lisa Schmeiser. Thank you so much for being here. This was a delight. Thank you for asking me. James Thompson, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks. I I look forward to more of this millennial cinematic universe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, James, that's so smart. (gasps) I love it. That's why we pay him the big bucks. Kelly (laughs) Gamont, thank you for joining us. I look forward to many seasons of the Millennial Falcon. (laughs) Oh, even Uh, smarter. Crossover. Crossover. (laughs) And Nathan Aldman, thank you for being here. I can't believe anyone else would want to listen to me ramble about Captain America, but I'm always happy to do so. Thank you very Mm -hmm. much. And everybody out there, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.